This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Honesty is a word you'd have to put a lot of pressure on. You try to protect people as well from the brutality of truth. So I'd be aware in some of the poems I write that I need to protect people. So that would be, I think, my poetic license. Why have political leaders and dictators feared the power of the poet for generations and generations? And how does poetry express and shape the world we live in? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this week's show celebrates the life and work of one of our country's most cherished and revered poets, the Sixth Ireland Professor of Poetry, Paula Meehan. This gentle yet fearless poet, long-time teacher and social activist joins me in studio to celebrate upcoming International Women's Day. This is a conversation about the brutality of truth, peace and inspiration, love and the transformative power of body and breathwork. I've come through a period in history where women's role, women's position, women's rights have all come under intense scrutiny and women themselves have been very vocal and organised to greater or lesser degrees about the kind of change they'd like to see in the part they play in society. And I've always found that, I've always found the feminist tradition, to use Yvonne Boland's words, very nourishing. And I would have tried to marry the kind of strong female role models, you know, the women I found in growing up who managed who kept things together, who kept households, families, kept stuff together, that kind of street courage and strength with you know, the more theoretical ideas about the liberty of women you know, because nothing was granted, not the vote not equal pay not our right to the same kind of recompense for the same kind of work nothing was granted, it all had to be struggled for. So in a way I think women of my generation also had to fight that war within relationships to try and meet the person you love, your beloved on those equal terms. I suppose everyone, I think, strives for some place that they're totally absorbed. That's what I would be looking for. I'd love to get totally absorbed so that time passes and you look up and like hours have gone by and you've been so completely in what you're making. And I remember the first poetry workshop I ever went to, well it was with the John McGahar, now a great novelist and storyteller. And he used to say that, that that was the great solace of writing, that you lose the self, you lose the ego, you lose the, your daily self-obsessions, get lost in the, in the greater kind of calmness and the comfort, if you like, of making. So I think that's where I would find a bit of peace. I'm much happier. I think my immune system is probably stronger when I'm in the creative zone. I spend most of my life trying to get there. When I first read Paula Meehan's haunting poem, The statue of the Virgin at Granard speaks. I shook. To be quite honest, I didn't know how to react. However, one thing it did make me do is think and ask a lot of questions about society and the way we live. And I have to say, its words shot through me. I will never 
forget it. Paula wrote this poem to honour the memory of 15-year-old Anne Lovett, who gave birth to a baby alone by a grotto in her hometown of Granard County Longford. 25 years later, this remarkable poem still sits uncomfortably in Irish society and continues to provoke conversation and debate. Paula Meehan was born in Dublin and studied at Trinity College and at Eastern Washington University, where she was taught by Plutzer Prize-winning Beat Generation poet and essayist Gary Snyder. Influenced by Buddhism and eco-politics, Paula has been a lifelong social activist and educator and is often considered the informal poet laureate of Dublin. Her poetry is marked by its wit and energy, its beauty and raw honesty, and uniquely gives voice to the people and places that are often marginalised and forgotten. Paula has published five collections of poetry, the most recent being Painting Rain. Her other notable collections include Return and No Blame, Reading the Sky, The Man Who Was Marked by Winter, Pillow Talk and Dharmakaya. Paula has collaborated with a range of interesting players, including dancers, visual artists and filmmakers. And in September last year, Paula was elected Ireland Professor of Poetry. Well, earlier in the week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Paula for a couple of hours to talk life and poetic license. Paula told me about a poem she wrote about her grandmother. Let's take a listen. This poem looks at my grandmother, who's a huge influence in my life as typical Dublin woman, very devout. I spent a lot of my childhood on my knees in front of various frightening statues around the churches of the city. But she was that also that inner city combination of devoutness and total scepticism when it came to the clergy. And she had a fantastic sense of the, the fallen nature of humankind. This remembers her, remembers listening to the reports on the radio of the findings of the Ryan Tribunal, one very dark November, psychically dark and actually dark. And I heard her voice again. Hannah, grandmother, coldest day yet of November, her voice close in my ear. Tell them priests nothing. Was I twelve? Thirteen, filthy-minded. Keep your sins to yourself. Don't be giving them a thrill, dirty old feckers. As close as she came to the birds and the bees, on her knees in front of the Madonna, Our Lady of the Facts of Life, beside the confessional oak door closing like a coffin lid, neatly carpentered, waxed and buffed, in the well-made box of this poem, her voice dies she closes her eyes and lowers her brow to her joined hands prays hard woman to woman that's a powerful poem paula and it's very hard to actually to put words into the feelings that are conveyed in that poem do you think your grandmother would be very feel very betrayed by the type of ireland and the way religion and the persecutions within religion and how things have evolved today. What would she make of things? And do you think there would be a palpable feeling of betrayal? I think there was that sense of betrayal there anyway. I don't know that my grandmother would have found the same language as I find to describe it. I mean, those warnings to me as a child were not explicit. They were somewhat covert, but their meaning came across, you know. So I think there was a sense in the culture generally that people knew what was going on this this thing that oh nobody knew what was going on I actually don't buy that and I remember as a child in conversations amongst adults you overheard stuff 
and people knew, especially in the north inner city where I spent my childhood, where people had their eyes wide open. And there was a terrific tradition of radicalism anyway. I have to remember the priests, many of them chastised the people and warned them against communism and warned them against socialism and warned them against joining trade unions, you know. Anything that would that historical moment have helped their position. You know, often the priests were a very reactionary force anyway. And that was, people knew that. And how political do you think poetry should be? And what do you think the role of the poet is in communicating the challenges and conflicts in our social landscape? Well, I think the job of the poet is to write poetry, full stop. And that's why you learn your trade and why you do what you do. What communities make of the poems and what use they're put to is actually outside the hands of the poet. And I would never try and put myself into an agenda sodden or ridden situation. A very interesting question is why is poetry so feared by those who have totalitarian agendas like Stalin quaking in his boots at the sight of the poets, Hitler the same, burn the books, burn the poets. We saw in South America in our own lifetimes, Derhara, Neruda dying of a broken heart at the betrayal of, of his dream of a democratic republic. So we don't have to look far. Even though the poets mostly get on with their work writing, I mean in the case of many of those poets, tense poems of the heart and of their inner psychic lives. So it's the use to which poetry is put that really is the political end of it. I, I'm very conscious as we sit here speaking at this moment that down in Limerick prison is Margaret Darcy, the writer, the peace activist. I mean, she's in there ironically for breaking the peace and she has devoted her entire life to working towards peace against nuclear weapons in the Greenham Common um, encampments. The first time I have a love memory of meeting Margaret Darcy in 1975 when herself and her husband John Arden, the playwright and novelist, at that time a revered figure in radical British theatre. 1975 they brought six full-length plays on the life of James Connolly to Dublin and I interned as you say nowadays I just turned up basically and worked for three months on that production with the mask maker and prop maker uh, Maggie Howard and I learned traditional mask making I made puppets and I watched John and Margareta Darcy turn those six scripts into a powerful 24-hour night of theatre which took place in Liberty Hall the full six plays. It was three months intense rehearsal. I watched her work with the script. I watched all that passion and she would have been uh, I was only coming into my 20s she would have been a younger, much younger woman then than she is now. Totally committed to what she does. The idea that she's down there mouldering in Limerick Prison is I find absolutely unbelievable, surreal and uh, totally unnecessary She's 79 and she's undergoing cancer treatment. But whether she's 25, fit and healthy, and she has a point of view and a perspective and a voice, surely Ireland should allow her her voice. But I'm sure there is an argument that she is allowed her opinion that she's in jail because she broke the law. And there are many people in jail for breaking the law. And there are an awful lot of head the balls walking around the streets who also broke the law. Dangerous people who should be securely restrained for the good of the communities. I mean, you only have to open the papers to know that there's such anxiety amongst people about their own safety. There are also plenty of white-collar criminals walking around with gazillions in their back pockets. Gazillions. 
or gone down the drain. So how do you discriminate in the measures of justice? How do you give what seems like justice? Someone who has stood up for their intensely held beliefs, lifelong beliefs, you know, how do you put that in one set side of the scales and put the total scandalous lack of of accountability and lack of responsibility on the other side of the scale. But back to the poetry, yeah, and your very interesting question, which will be asked in every generation, where does the poet, you know, situate himself or herself in uh, the political world? And really, I think, I just keep going back to it, that all I can do is make the poems. I think that's what artists do. They make, they practice their art, they do their stuff. But if they do it in the full kind of openness of their whole being, psychically, physically, even as, a, you know, a member of all the different kinds of communities we inhabit, our elective infinities with some communities and just our neighbourhood by virtue of the fact where we live, then if you live your life within uh, your world and you're picking up and you're trying to give expression to so many complicated and intense systems of information or ecologies of knowledge. Um, if you make the poem with the full heart behind it and all your skills you can bring to it, then it is going to express the zeitgeist. I mean, I don't live up on top of the mountain, though I have been up on top of the mountain and I would like to return there soon. But, you know, you don't live as an isolated being. And if you, you give expression to stuff that's going on, if you make it well, it may also express what other people think. I mean, I do think poets are like the lightning conductors of the zeitgeist and it breaks out in you the way song breaks out in people. And is that a huge responsibility, Paula? Um, not if you keep your eye on the fact that um, you must really make your work and make it well and do your best. You know, that keeps you kind of, that keeps you busy enough. I don't go around in some big philosophical flux why am I here? What am I doing? Where am I going? Oh, the burden of having to sit down and on my couch and look on my inner eye and pen a sonnet. You know, you just work. A lot of my work is teaching, which I love, both in the institutions and out in the community. A lot of my, my work is about opening a space for poetry in people's lives. And I feel really absolutely blessed in doing that, that I can do it. Now, Paula, in the 1980s, Dublin was a very different place in terms of educational advantages and the availability or access to poetry. And you were one of the first literacy officers for Dublin South Inner City. Yeah, I, I came back from the States. I had been studying um, for a Master's of Fine Arts and Poetry in uh, the wild northwest of America, which Washington State, which I absolutely loved. And I came back to Dublin. And in the couple of years that I'd been away, heroin had really hit the poor communities um, um, which would have been my own childhood community over in the north inner city. The, you know, the big sprawling suburbs that had unemployment had hit really heavily. I mean, the difference with that big recession was that nobody went into it with major debt and it was kind of just pre-globalisation. So it was a very different kind of recession. Nobody had any money, but nobody had any major kind of non-stop dealing with the banks and their hench people. So I found when I came home, the children of the different communities. Um, heroin had hit, often the brightest, really fantastic kids. But, you know, heroin is a big painkiller. And why wouldn't they kill 
their pain, you know, their communal pain, the, the level of kind of help for people, for communities in crisis just wasn't on the agenda. In fact, when the community leaders went to their politicians and said, look, there's crisis, the kids on drugs, it's crazy. The response was basically, oh, you must be a terrorist, you know. There was there was a lot of trying to blacken the names of people who are working full out for their communities. So it was a very strange time to arrive back. I found a place in Fatima to live and I got very involved there. I was only there a couple of days when there was a knock on the door and it was this lovely man, John Cooper, and he said, uh, you have a typewriter. Well, the Fatima Development Group is looking for a writer. Come on, you know. So before I knew, I was very involved there writing what we used to call corpo speak try and pull some grants into the uh, flats and one of the things that was set up was um, a washeteria which you can 